proud Canadian. I proudly participate in the stereotypes of Canadian life. Cheering loudly at hockey games, shoveling snow in April, and having a Timmy's while taking the kids out for Halloween in their snowsuits. As a daughter of immigrant parents, I have come to appreciate this country and everything it has afforded me in my life. I have freedom, an education, and my health. But I'm embarrassed to say that I have taken it all for granted. I have made assumptions that by simply living in this country meant access to all those luxuries. This is not the truth for everyone. With the launch of his recent book, Matters of Life and Death, Public Health Issues in Canada, Globe and Mail health columnist Andre Picard made some bold and hard-to-take statements about Canada's healthcare system. If you don't know Mr. Picard, know this. He's been tweeting, commenting, and critiquing Canada's healthcare system for over 30 years. He's seen and experienced the highs and lows of healthcare. Some have even labeled him the public health hero because he says what others won't. In an interview with Chatelaine magazine to promote the book, Picard was asked, what is the most urgent issue in Canada right now? His answer? Indigenous health. Period. He goes on to say that it's not a new problem, one that extends for more than 100 years, but it's a problem we created, and we can help change it too. This isn't an easy fix. It's also not one that needs science or technology to fix. We need knowledge, understanding, and a desire to change. I'm not proposing this sole episode can offer all that, but I'd like to try to scratch the surface here. I'd like to be part of the movement. I want to be a proud Canadian with my eyes wide open. I'm Kathy Bowers, and you're listening to The Objective Lens. I mean, really, on every front, any health condition you can possibly name, physical or or mental, emotional, even spiritual, I mean, in a holistic sense, Indigenous people are, uh, carry the the burden of ill health in Canada, full stop. And so, you know, it's in some, in some ways, and it's, it's almost, you know, such a monumental challenge. But I think, you know, the good thing is, is that, um, we have such resilience in our communities and so many strengths. That's Dr. Carrie Barassa. She's the chair of Northern and Indigenous Health at the Health Sciences North Research Institute in Sudbury. She's also the scientific director of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, Institute of Aboriginal People's Health. What she's describing briefly there is just a small indication of the spectrum of health-related issues impacting our Indigenous and Northern populations in this country. It's been reported that Indigenous peoples, which include Aboriginal, Inuit, and Métis, experience rates of suicide up to five or six times higher than the general Canadian population. You may remember the crisis in April 2016, when the Attawapiskat First Nation declared a state of emergency for the escalating problem of youth suicide. It's been recorded that Indigenous people experience mental health issues at a higher rate than the general population. One study reported that First Nations people experience depression upwards of over twice the national average. These populations are at risk for other health issues too, such as diabetes. 
One report from Alberta states that about 8 in 10 Indigenous Canadians who are young adults will develop type 2 diabetes in their lifetime, compared with 5 in 10 in the general population. The work of the Institute of Aboriginal People's Health, the IAPH, that Carrie works with, focuses on the advancement of a national health research agenda to improve and promote the health of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people in Canada through research, knowledge translation, and capacity building. I asked her about the focus of health research in Indigenous communities and the goals of the IAPH. I mean, our goal is is really to create um, funding opportunities and space for Indigenous um, researchers and um, well, also for, uh, I don't like the word non-Indigenous, it just bothers me. So, uh, you know, allied researchers um, who are working in the field uh, to promote uh, Indigenous research and that will um, hopefully translate into what we, that's the, the whole goal is to translate into, um, you know, better health uh, for Indigenous people. I mean, we know that the gap is, is, is still very wide um, between Indigenous people and the rest of uh, of Canadians, and so um, you know that's that's really our goal is to create appropriate funding opportunities. Um, that, but but really um, using and privileging Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous research methodologies, looking at uh, wellness and asset-based um, solutions, and uh, the strengths of Indigenous community members, and in really ensuring that Indigenous peoples are driving. Uh, the research that they're that they're the ones that are um, determining what the research priorities are. What was interesting to me in that explanation was the importance that the IAPH places on using Indigenous knowledge, methods, and philosophies throughout. There is deliberate emphasis on making sure the solutions and priorities are driven by the Indigenous community. It's not about the I'll use Carrie's words here the allied health researchers coming in and telling them what they need to do. And there is a very good reason for that. The communities, the strengths, I mean, the, the solutions really lie in the communities. And I think that we just have not done a good job of, of listening to communities and engaging communities and saying, you know, you have the answers. You, you, all, you know all the problems, for sure. But you also have the answers. You have the solutions. And uh, I've said I've said this a few times now um, when I when I've been speaking, but you know, really, we, we I think we in a, in a big sense we have to speak speak less and listen more. And I think that we have to humble ourselves a little bit and and realize that um, you know those of us that are in academia we have a particular role to play, but but we are by no means the experts. You know, the experts, they're the ones in the communities. They're the ones that are living it every single day. So I feel, you know, a great privilege and honor to be able to to serve communities and listen to them and try my very best to provide the opportunities that they need to, um, to use research in a way that will benefit them. You know, that, that's, really, that's really what I'm, I'm, you know, trying to do. Healthcare is expensive. According to the Canadian Institute of Health Information, CAIHI, in 2017, total health expenditure in Canada was expected to reach a whopping $242 billion, with a B. 
That works out to just over $6,000 per person. It's expected that health spending will represent 11.5% of Canada's gross domestic product. Health is no joke. We sink a lot of money into our world-class system. But that average per person doesn't give the full picture of the cost of delivering health care to our more remote and northern populations. In a separate report from Kaihai, it estimated that health expenditures per capita in 2014 reached over $10,000 in the Yukon, over $12,000 in Northwest Territories, and over $14,000 in Nunavut. That's close to almost two and a half times higher in some areas than the national average. Delivering health care to small communities scattered kilometers away from each other is, in a word, challenging. Making sure that it's the right care at the right time is also a challenge. But that's what we expect from our health care system, don't we? I'd like to take a minute to talk a bit about our health care system. We have Tommy Douglas, known as the father of universal health care, to thank for it. It's good. It's not perfect. Regardless of where you live in Canada, the healthcare system can be so much better. Most provinces don't cover prescription costs. There are long waits for non-urgent care like MRIs. More than a third of Canadians will wait more than two months to see a specialist. And, according to an article in the New York Times, 18% of Canadians will wait at least four months for elective surgery. That doesn't include the 1.1 million people living in the remote areas where specialized care is just hard to get in general. I had the chance to sit down and speak to Dr. Fergal McGee when he was a guest presenter at the LabCon conference in Banff, Alberta last year. Dr. McGee is the Department Head of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at Saskatoon Health Region. If you ever had a chance to see him speak, he's a dynamo, a whirlwind of information, and opinions. He has some thoughts about Canada's healthcare system. They mean a physician-dominated, largely hospital-based disease treatment system. And that's actually quite different from a health system. So there's not much room for public health there or preventative health there. There's still um, a, a facility or a, almost like a built-in facility to deal with doctors in primary health care. Doctors are great in primary health care, don't get me wrong. Primary health care would not survive without family physicians, but there are greater roles for health centres that have nurses, social workers, physiotherapists involved. So I think we need to really declare as an important part of our approach to health the concept that we have health and a health system, so they're two different things, and a concept that we need people to take ownership of their health And a third concept that we have health teams and that the teams actually might need more people doing different things. Okay, he went through a few ideas there, but what stood out to me was the idea of getting people to take ownership of their health. It seems like a basic concept, but in Canada, sometimes we get caught up in the allure of universal care and have those expectations that the system will just take care of us. It kind of sounds like we've become spoiled brats. This system we have so much faith in has been failing many people for many years. I'd like you to meet Brenda. She's part of the solution. More specifically, she represents how the lab is part of the solution to Northern Care. 
Brenda Helpard is the point of care coordinator for Nunavut. She's part of a creative solutions program. Brenda is on loan to the Nunavut government from St. Joe's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. Every two weeks, Brenda heads up to Nunavut to work directly with healthcare professionals at the 25 health centers spread out over the territory. In her two week stints there, she introduces new point of care equipment, teaches users quality controls, and educates all staff on the use of point of care testing in helping their patients. That's a very high level overview. I'll let Brenda explain it better. None of it is uh, quite a large territory, it's double the size of Ontario. It is broken down into three regions. And one of the, the big things to look at with point of care testing is standardization. Um, some health centers have um, quite a few point of care devices in use, other health centers do not. So there needed to be an overlook of what is in place and what tests have the physicians and nurse practitioners uh, required um, through committees for approval, what tests are approved, what are the best devices. Uh, the nurses up in the health centers have such a large scope of practice. Um, sometimes they're even the pharmacists. Um, so we need to be mindful when we bring in devices that they are user-friendly. It's not that the nurses aren't capable of learning, but it's just adding something else on onto their plate. So we need to be mindful of the workload attached with that when it comes to calibration, quality control, and the ease of use. Um, staff training was another big issue. You do have staff turnover, you have casual staff. So we need to keep that in mind with point of care testing are the end users. I thought this program was so unique and interesting. I was curious as to how it all began for her. How Brenda, a medical laboratory technologist working in Hamilton, Ontario, finds herself on loan to a Northern Territory. Um, well, I remember being approached um, by uh, human resources at St. Joe's looking for someone uh, that they could loan out to the government of Nunavut to, um, to work in the healthcare environment there. Uh, there has been a relationship between St. Joseph's Healthcare and the government of it. Um, for some years now, there has been uh, some con consultants going. There have been, um, I know, um, public health nurse, mental health nurse have gone, biomedical engineering, um, respiratory therapists. And it was just a great place uh, for the government of it to um, have a relationship with St. Joe's to sometimes touch base with other medical professionals. Why reinvent the wheel? Um, not that it's just easy for us to take our policies that work in Hamilton, put them up there and say, great, you have our policies, run with them. There needs to be that respect of it's a different environment, different culture. But to come alongside with some of what we already have in place and some of the struggles we've already gone through putting some policies in place and how can we come alongside and have um, the government none of it tell us what their needs are um, and how we can help with our expertise in our fields. Perhaps these programs are happening all over the place. I'm just not in the loop of government healthcare loan programs. But I think this is an innovative and a unique way of addressing some of the challenges and issues they face. It also falls in line with what Carrie was saying about using the people who are there 
working and living in those communities, but collaborating with others. It's not about someone coming in and telling them what to do. It's teaching best practices, then listening to concerns or challenges, and together coming up with solutions. One of the largest challenges of delivering healthcare in the North is geography. In my conversation with Brenda, she was able to give me a better understanding of the sheer vastness of the North and how it plays a role in quality of care and, of course, budget. The way she explained it to me was that there are several health centers around the territory. Those are where patients receive care or treatment. There may be some lab services in the healthcare center, but there are main labs that process most of the test results. Every lab is a minimum a flight away from the main lab. I've become accustomed to immediacy. I think most of us have. So the idea of anything being a flight away seems, well, seems slow. The quality of sample is important. So when you want to measure glucose in a blood sample, you can't wait 36 hours to analyze it. So when the health centers do sample collection, there is a need to spin down and pour off some samples to freeze before sending uh, to analyze the sample the best way. Um, So there is an issue sometimes with turnaround times regarding the sample viability. Um, Flights quite often can be canceled or delayed due to weather. Um, We think of snow in the winter, but what I ran into a lot in spring and fall is fog as well. I was curious about how they mitigate the complications in order to help patients. Weather is not a typical challenge I would think to have an impact on patient test results. I'll let Brenda explain a bit more about what it's like to work within these unpredictable conditions and the effect on patient care. The patients will come in, they'll have their blood drawn, The samples will be prepped. Certain samples are spun and poured off and frozen. They'll be shipped, they'll be packaged, they'll be at the airport, and then the flight's delayed. And a lot of times they're not outright canceled. They're gonna try again in an hour or two. So the samples sit, Mm -hmm. and then they try for three hours. There's been times I've been on a plane for eight hours and ended up back in the same location I started at because you couldn't land to where we were going Sometimes you may end up at a different health center in a different area or back to where you started from. Um, Really, it it depends on where you're flying to. Um, So that's uh, a great difficulty. And you you really feel for the staff at the health center and also for the patients. Um, You're building a relationship with the patients. And nobody wants to go and have their blood drawn, especially on a child to find out the next day that the flight didn't happen or the flight was delayed, the samples were thawed or they were frozen if they weren't to be frozen. You have different samples that are at different temperatures. Many different reasons that can ha- happen with uh, with flight issues that the patient has to be repoked. Samples need to be redrawn. Um, that, you know, that does make it more difficult to continue positive relationships And you're also maybe delaying patient treatment. While geography alone causes all sorts of issues with healthcare, there is an intricate system in place to try to counter those issues. Technology has come a long way and has been helpful in the delivery of healthcare amongst the more isolated communities. The North is a great example of telecommunications, transportation, and technology coming together for the greater good. 
There is a, a delay in lab samples due to that. Now, there, there have been many strides forward. Um, bandwidth and internet is an issue up there. Um, but by August of 2018, every health center will be live with their lab information systems, Meditech. That's fantastic, and that prevents a lot of the faxing of requisitions and results. Um, so there's been a lot of work being done because um, they realized, you know, that was a major issue, and there's been a lot of work uh, to bring Meditech into place. And once sites are live with Meditech, then when we look at point of care, we can also look at middleware, which can talk to the point of care device and talk to Meditech. So results can flow from the device right into Meditech without any transcription from the user. And that way quality control can be better, better monitored um, and patient results are recorded in the, uh, the hospital database as a point of care testing result. There's a few very big picture things we discussed in this episode. The whole concept of a healthcare system, how we deliver healthcare to remote and northern communities, and how do we work with those communities to ensure it is the right kind of care for them. Like I said, we are just scratching the surface here, so I'm not making any conclusions. What I would like to do is turn it back to you, the listener. How can you be part of the solution? What can you offer? Okay, I'm not suggesting you loan yourself out to head up to Nunavut every two weeks. Although an adventure, it's not for everyone. No, I'm talking about what you can do in your own workplace, in your day-to-day -day life that can help support Indigenous healthcare. I'm going to let Carrie have a word on this. You know, honestly, one of the sort of elephants in the room, as I, as I say when I'm, when I'm sort of sharing what what our current strategic priorities have been and, and what we think some of the major issues are. To be quite frank with you, one of the, one of the major problems is that people talk about access to healthcare all the time and I, I go speak about it and they think I'm going to talk about you know, geographical access and, and that, that's a big issue, that's a problem. One of the major problems is, to be quite honest with you, access is about um, culturally safe care. Are, pe are people feeling culturally safe? And so the reason I'm bringing this up because we have to start talking about the systemic barriers, the systemic issues. And one of the systemic issues is, quite frankly, uh, systemic racism. And so when you talk about what can, what can people do that are maybe not having direct access to patients, maybe indirect access, maybe, maybe some of their colleagues working in, in um, hospital settings, clinical settings, you know, that is something we really have got to start to address because, quite frankly, racism, oppression, the historical legacies and, and government policies, they continue to perpetuate our, our ongoing um, health inequities in Indigenous communities. They really do. I'll let Carrie continue because she's able to articulate this issue so well and give real examples of what the healthcare situation is really like for Indigenous people. You know, I mentioned before that Indigenous people carry an inordinate burden of health issues. We suffer, we suffer the worst health of any group in Canada. And there's, a, you know, a direct connection to systemic racism. You know, Indigenous people, they don't often have um, uh, a regular physician. And they use, uh, for example, the emergency room sometimes as their, as their regular physician. And by the time that they go in, sometimes they're so sick they have 
you know, multiple chronic conditions. Um, they might, they might have, you know, they might have um, sometimes conditions that by the time they get into the hospital, they're, they're, they're palliative. So it's, it's so important that we recognize those systemic issues, whether they're, um, it's bias, whether it's discrimination, um, whatever it happens to be. And so I think there's actually a lot that people can do in terms of looking at those systemic issues. How do, how do we, how do we address those? Do we, you know, how do we, how do we sort of, you know, call a spade a spade and say, look, you know, we got to, we got to, we got to acknowledge this. And that comes down to, you know, uh, creating culturally safe workspaces um, and, and culturally safe care within hospital and clinical settings. It's heavy. I know but it's honest. And I think what we all have to do is a little reflection and a little self-assessment to ask, where are my prejudices laying? In any health profession, you need to set aside your personal ideals, prejudices, and treat the patient for what is presented. On top of that, you have to enable a culturally safe work environment for your patients. I asked Carrie, who is responsible for this and why? I actually think the onus is more on the organization than it is just on the individual. I think individuals can only do so much, you know, as you pointed out, right? And they really do need the support. Um, my worry about training is that we sort of, it sort of has become a bit of a checkbox. And I, I actually have been uh, working with a number of, of colleagues in Australia and New Zealand. And New Zealand, of course, is sort of the birthplace of cultural, cultural safety. And um, cultural safety actually sort of encompasses all the other cultural competencies and sensitivity and all, the, all that kind of stuff that sort of pops up, and I, which I think is good because you, you sort of, I think, need one encompassing sort of arena for, for all of the, because it's an evolution, right? Um, I, you know, I was, back in the day, I was a, a cultural awareness facilitator and we did a whole great deal of training. And, and I think it was good because it was a starting point for people to start to feel safe, to, to ask questions and have dialogue and but, you know, it's really evolved now because now with cultural safety, it encompasses all of those things, but it sort of also gets to the core of what we really need to do, and that is look at systems, right? Because, because really, this is, this is ingrained in, in, in the colonial system. This was, these were built, all of our institutions were built on systems, right? And so that's why it's so hard to change things. Does your organization have a policy or some sort of training for creating culturally safe environments? Have you gone through the training and been able to apply those skills or use those policies effectively? I'm curious as to how many of us would take the next step beyond sitting through a training seminar. Carrie feels organizations have a responsibility to this. I believe in order for anything an organization may introduce to help create culture sensitivity, it's still up to the individuals to live it. I bring this up because I want this conversation to end with you. Each person has a role to play in changing the way we work with Indigenous peoples. You have options available to you. How are you going to be part of the solution? The Objective Lens is written and produced by Michael Grant and myself, Kathy Bowers and is the official podcast of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Administrative support by Redmilla Minor. Editorial and editing support by Erica Now. For other episodes, supplemental content, and bonus material, 
visit our website at podcast.csmls.org. If you're in the medical laboratory field, you'll want to go to the website to find a link to a short quiz. By completing the quiz, you'll earn a certificate verifying professional development hours by listening to this episode. We'd love to hear from you. Come chat with us on Twitter at CSMLS or Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash CSMLS. Thanks for listening.